since Ryan Miller and for the past 15 years have helped hundreds of people to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. If you're serious about raising money, launching your business, or taking your life to the next level, this show will give you the answers so that you too can enjoy your pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. Look, raising capital and analyzing business models can make you a ton of wealth or make you lose it all, depending on how well you understand these winning formulas. So in this week's episode of Making Billions, I have my friend Aaron Baer, a 12-time entrepreneur and best-selling author, to give us his secret formula for growing 12 companies and raising over $150 million in capital. Let's get into it. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today I have my dear friend Aaron Baer. Aaron is the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and number one Amazon bestselling author of Exponential Theory, The Power of Thinking Big. He's raised over $150 million in capital, built and sold 12 companies. So what this means is that Aaron is the guy you want to listen to when it comes to raising capital and creating exponential change in your organization. So Aaron, welcome to the show, man. Ryan, uh, I'm so excited to, to finally get on your show. I've been a listener for a long time and just fascinated by the community you build and just all the different people and stories and conversations you've had. Glad to be here. Awesome, man. It's so good to have you. And, and thank you. The honor is all mine to have someone with your background and your caliber. I mean, what I just said about you doesn't do you justice. There's so much more to unpack here. So you're going to want to tune in at the end where Aaron gives some of his best, crunchiest advice. So hopefully if I ask nicely, you'll give us some of the cheat codes. But before we get into that, maybe you can walk us through like, how did you even become an expert in your field and where did it begin for you? It really all started back when I, I decided to venture out in the world. Um, I was from a, a small place called Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, ultimately saw, well, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just tell you the story. I broke into the University of Notre Dame's career center as a non-student. So I get into this career center to get an internship because my college uh, didn't really have the best internship. So I thought, well, I'll get a good internship. So uh, I see this bulletin board and I I see this little thing on there that says semester at sea. And ultimately, at that point in my life, I'd never been out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, had a very small mindset. You know, big to me was going across town. So this this venture to Notre Dame was a big venture. And then I literally opened my eyes up that, you know, I could travel the world. And from there, uh, it led me to 12 countries and what I would say accelerated learning and growth and on a path uh, just to think bigger and bigger and bigger. And then honestly, to, to get perspective from, you know, people that I met along the way to kind of see through their eyes and how, you know, they grew and, and built their businesses. So I didn't become afraid of uh, launching companies and doing things. My history is I, I sold 12 companies. I failed at a lot more. <laughs> we can definitely talk about failure as, uh, you know, an opportunity to learn and grow. And then uh, from there, I, you know, became entrepreneur in residence at Arizona State University, Thunderbird, and then Singularity, which is in Silicon Valley at NASA Ames, uh, where I got to be around a lot of exponential entrepreneurs. And in that, I was around Peter Diamantes and Salim Ishmael and some of these great thought leaders in Exponential. And that really inspired me to think like, well, why do these exponential thinkers? Why are these people that are creating unicorns and these billionaires? And so I was a facilitator and was able to kind of get in the room with Elon Musk and Bill Gates and facilitated conversations at Microsoft and Tesla and Starbucks and a lot of these different leading companies around the world. And in that experience, I just started taking notes after every day that I'd be in there of some of the different people they'd walk in. What did they do that was so different? How did they think different about they approached every you know problem as an opportunity and they thought a little longer term than everyone else. And so I started collecting these. And I collected 1,200 pages of notes over a 15-year period of time. And that ultimately led me to writing Exponential Theory, 
And from there, you know, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you start talking about exponential stuff, you draw exponential people in. And, you know, I'm working with a, a dozen family offices and really helping them think bigger about their own portfolios and investing into kind of some of these new exponential technologies that I write about in my book as well. So it's really just been a self-fulfilling path to think bigger every day and, and grow a little bit every day. And I've just been uh, lucky to grow to my old age and uh, continue to love what I do every day. I love that. You're living the dream. And if you can hear the passion in Aaron's voice, that is what we all aspire for is just living that dream. I know it's a term thrown around, living the dream. Speaking of that, so now we're here. You've done a ton of work. I mean, 12 companies we just skated past. I mean, that alone we could do a whole episode on. Never mind you're running neuroscience companies and being around all of these titans of industry. But what kind of stuff are you up to today? Maybe walk us through. I know you have something that you do. It's not only your book, but you have something called uh, Change Agent Academy. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit about what you're up to today. Yeah. So um, after Exponential Theory came out and uh, it was well received, you know, as you said, as a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and we were number one business bestselling book on Amazon for uh, a couple of weeks. And actually, we're number two behind John Grisham's, which, uh, you know, was uh, was an honor because I grew up and that was my dad's favorite author. Um, I really was hoping that I'd eclipse him, but uh, it never happened. So still working hard to get my dad's approval on that. But he was thrilled that I was on a list with John Grisham. Anyways, that just kind of opened doors. I mean, I think for any of the listeners out there that ever, you know, have the the structure to kind of think through writing a book and actually putting your thoughts on. It's a, it's an incredible process to kind of get clarity on your own vision for who you are. And then translating that into um, really, you know, opening doors. And from that, I learned that this thing that I was talking about, all these notes that I had, uh, I had this really methodology is the theory is exponential theory. The practice is the Change Agents Academy. So uh, my goal is to create change agents, which are exponential thinkers that, you know, be the change they see in the world. And we really created a process, a seven step process that, really came through just kind of all of these research that I did over 15 years and ultimately uh, led to the Change Agents Academy, which is uh, a program called the XMBA, which is Exponential Mindset, Beliefs and Attitudes. Um, it's a little knock on MBA programs because I taught in a couple MBA programs. I always now say MBAs are for middle managers. And if you really want to be a leader in the future, it's that you have to have an exponential mindset, belief and attitude. And that is the you know thing that I see in all the different relationships that I have, if it's, you know, people that have created unicorns or, or massive funds or have uh, are managing, you know, enterprises at uh, global level, you do realize that they have to think at a higher level and they have to focus on bigger obstacles. And I think that's one of the things that my Change Agents Academy is to get people out of their own way from thinking about maybe uh, what happened in traffic on the way to the office that could, you know, really disrupt the whole day to understand if you can regulate your emotions and you put the thought to what you want. As you put that thought out there, if that emotion, you really feel it. And that's where you'll, you'll hear me talk with a lot of conviction, conviction and passion. You know, my goal is to kind of help other people get that so they can obviously really open doors like I've been able to um, with the the things that I've created around myself and the relationships I've created. And it's been it's been an incredible journey, Ryan. And, you know, I'm just fortunate enough to talk to people like you uh, and have you in my network. And, uh, you know, that I know is uh, just going to expand my mindset even more. That's right. Yeah, perfect. And that's that's what it's all about. So if you follow the show, uh, I know Aaron and you and I, we spoke offline. We had uh, no short supply of things to talk about, especially a lot of theories and our perspective on how to grow companies and all these things. And boy, does Aaron have a ton of knowledge. So hopefully we're going to distill it down. He's, maybe we have a seven hour podcast or we just distill it down either. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how long this show goes. But uh, in all seriousness, though, uh, this is a ton of information. And one of the things that you touched on is something that uh, I also strongly believe in is one of the catalysts for raising capital is what I call a long game strategy is what I call reputation relationships. And so as you possess and invest in good reputation relationships, and yes, you can raise capital without it, that's okay. But with it, my goodness, do things really 
take off for you. And so with reputation relationship, these are some of the things, through, at least through my lens that Aaron's talking about, uh, as far as having me in his network and he's in mine and all these different things that we're doing, we're building reputation, we're building relationships and we continue to scale up. And that's how a guy like Aaron can raise $150 million because you need the reputation relationship and the way he's gone about it, start and sold, what, 12 companies. I mean, you teach at universities, you're raising all this money. And so little by little, you build your rep and your relationships and then you distill it down in that book, Exponential Theory. So I'm wondering, as we turn the corner here, let's talk about some of the stuff that everyone came to listen. I mean, I'm sure people come to listen to you. They fly all over around the world to listen to what you said. And so we're fortunate enough to have just a few minutes of your time. What are some of those deep competitive advantages that you can provide for our audience? If, if you had to teach them a masterclass, what would be some of these principles that you would be able to teach people in starting, scaling a business, any of the above? Yeah, I think scaling a business, you know, one of the, the biggest things that when I go in to work with uh, startup companies and th they often have a, a marketing budget, kind of have some rules of thumb for marketing budgets that are, are pretty helpful. And, in, in you know, I've been in enough startups and involved with, with literally hundreds of them and an investor in 40 some of them. Uh, but as entrepreneur and residents have really <laughs> seen thousands of business plans that they all have the exponential hockey curve, which is what my book's about. So everybody, you know, if everything goes right, <laughs> you're going to have an inflection point and then things are just going to take off. To lay the seeds for that, the foundation really is really getting your message right, you know, finding the product market fit so that you can actually get to a place that you can start scaling that. And, you know, scaling it really comes from a marketing budget and kind of figuring out what is the most effective way to go to market. And some rules of thumbs that I always, I, you know, and I'll compare it to kind of your own commitment to working out in the gym. If, if you only work out in the gym, you know, one day a month, you're, you're likely not to show any progress whatsoever. And it is about consistency and persistence. And it's also about experimentation and learning and testing and how your body responds to the different weights and different things. And, you know, it's actually paying attention to, to your body so you can learn about that. But when you think of a company in that way, if you only spend, you know, zero to 10 percent of your dollars on marketing, it's likely a sentence that you're, you're sent to die. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of like the idea of uh, as a human being, you know, if we don't breathe in five minutes, we're pretty much going to die. So that's right there. The universe has told us this breath is really, really the most important thing <laughs> that our you know, automatic nervous system kind of regulates and just you don't really have to think about it. It's just a good, good habit that we're in to breathe. But you can go two days without water, not, you know, maybe three days. I uh, can go 10 days, maybe up to 13 days without sleep. So you start to see the importance of these different things. Uh, and then you can go about 30 days without eating. Some people can go longer. But the idea of this is it's kind of translates to the same as how you put your, your dollars into marketing. You're going to die if you don't do these things. And marketing is one of those things. And a startup is if you don't build awareness and you don't have some hooks and really some funnels to get people into your, your messaging and learning about you so that you can even see if your messaging is right. Once you figure that out and you have that product market fit, then it's time to scale. Then if you just want to maintain that, and this is where a lot of companies like, hey, we got a 15% market budget over overall spend or, and, and candidly, that's going to maintain, that's not going to, you know, have high growth. Um, anything over 15, if you get into like the 30%, you start to see companies that are learning how to grow, especially if they effectively find their product market fit, they find their conversion ratios and they start building that. So in that, there's also this strategy that I've worked with some unicorns that have raised a ton of capital, too much capital. And I call it the overgrowth syndrome where, you know, they may put 5x what their revenue is into customer acquisition. Well, that's an unsustainable, that's hyper growth, unsustainable model. And candidly kind of breaks a company really quick. I, I would attune that to, you know, a human being going and get Botox every day. It's kind of the thing is, is a little overkill and you're not really learning what you're doing. Money's buying your way out of mistake. You know, sales is a lifeblood of a company, but it's got to be healthy sales that are uh, repeatable, predictable, scalable, and sustainable, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a second when we, we get into an, another part of this around sales. But in the end, you know, it's it's finding a healthy market budget that actually creates what I call predictable growth. So as you, you kind of figure that out, then when you're ready to kind of scale and you've kind of figured out how to scale that, you can step on the gas. And that's where, you know, you look at a series A, series B, you see some of these companies where they can really 
really, really start to turn on the floodgates. But they have to be ready, staffed up and ready to be able to do that. But they have to also have figured out these product market fit, scaling, launching these new markets. What is their product lineup? How are they going to you know, cross sell into new product lineups? All those different things have to be learned along the way. And I generally help companies to focus on one product launch at a time because too many of them uh, go in too many different directions, spend too much too fast and never figure out you know, what their message is and uh, confuse the market. So scaling a business is pretty important is to kind of figure out you know, how do you market to the, the consumer, the, the business, you know, if you're B2C or B2B that you want to get to. It's, it's really understanding, having that perspective of the buyer that you're actually going after and then understanding, like, why do they buy from you? And once you learn those things, then you can put some gas in the tank and kind of go. It's just there is uh, overgrowth. And I've been part of a couple of companies that, uh, you know, bought their way into things and it kind of fell apart pretty quick um, after they were required by their investors to create a sustainable model. They weren't able to kind of keep that. So Yeah, interesting. And so, you know, just to recap, so about from your experience, less than 15%, especially zero, obviously zero to 10%, that's that's the death sentence, uh, or at least a downward viral, uh, likely from your vast experience, around 15%. Is that 15% of your budget or 15% of revenue? 15% of, of revenue, but it could be the budget or revenue. But ideally, you know, these are these are companies when you're turning the corner, they, they want to start to cut back. So after you start scaling, you start to cut back on these numbers. So at first it would be 15% of your budget, but then it would translate into ideally. And that's where it becomes unsustainable for those companies that are doing 5X the revenue. Um, you can't keep that going for very long. So it, there's a transition period. Every company is a little different. I mean, some companies engineering first versus sales first, but it's, it's really figuring out in the very early stages, it's kind of figuring out what is the business models that's going to work. And that intelligence is going to come from finding that repeatable, predictable model by spending that money to figure that out as quickly as possible. So 15% to maintain and then 30 to to really start growing. And isn't that funny? I know you and I talked about that. The joke that uh, I would hear back in my days was a CFO is revenue hides all sins. <laughs> and what they mean by that is like every company has issues and things they need to fix and they just throw more money at it instead of actually doing the root cause analysis and fixing it and making it better. They're like, I don't know, just here's here's more money for more band-aids. Just buy stickier band-aids or more crazy, whatever it is to put that together. Interesting when the revenue starts to dry up, the first thing to cut is marketing often. And so it sounds like we're saying, mm, just before you get too carried away, sure, I mean, you, you need to adapt. But before you get too carried away, if you you can't cut your way out of a recession, you have to grow your way out. Maybe it, that means different product. It's not always marketing is the problem, but it could be different product fixes, whatever that might be. I think the point is, is we're just giving rule of thumb on marketing. But really the point is, is revenue. And revenue has a multifaceted thing. You can learn about that in Aaron's book or many of these other books that are out there to find product market fit. Whatever it is, the point is, is work with people like Aaron to understand what's going on. Get a mentor, listen to the show, whatever you need to do. Make sure that you're very good at understanding the root causes of your analysis of your revenue issues if you have that. And that goes to founders, but it can also be to private equity people. And so if you're buying a business or launching one, these are some of those things that you should really look out for. And maybe you found a business you love and they're only spending 5% on marketing. Okay, well, you follow Aaron's formula, you know, you can create significant value if that is the issue. So a lot of things can come just from the marketing, but we're not done there. So raising capital and increasing that revenue. You mentioned things repeatable, predictable, scalable. Um, can you maybe walk us through? That sounds like a model that really has some weight for you. Maybe walk us through for our fans around the world. What do you mean by that? And why should anyone care? Yeah. So, and I just want to say on the marketing, just to kind of put a peg in that is every business is different. Like, like Tesla was able to kind of create a waiting list and avoid some marketing costs, but they did that through some other ways, some stunts and different things. And there, there's always going to be a different formula for every business. It is not prescriptive, but it is an idea to kind of look at that as comparing as a benchmark to other businesses. So, and in that, when you kind of transition to raising capital, you know, I think everybody, when they raise capital the first time is, you know, has this imposter syndrome. You know, how do you ask people for money? And, you know, you believe in your idea and you, you think you can change the world. But the fact that it is first time founders statistically, you know, 
you get better as you become founder again and again. And, and I guess as myself, I've uh, found a lot of companies, which really just means that I've made a lot, a lot of mistakes, including selling my companies too early, <laughs> you know, taking on part management teams that, you know, didn't have my best interest in mind, um, even though I was a founder. So there's all these things to learn, but specifically on raising capital, I think when, when you're going to pitch basically a, a venture capitalist or even private equity or anything, you know, it really comes down to this formula to create something that's repeatable. And what that means is, you know, if your product or service is repeatable, you know that you get the certain outcomes, you know, your net promoter score, you know, the outcomes of the product itself, you know, how much, how many people customer acquisition cost, you know, your attrition rate, your lifetime value of your customer. Now it becomes predictable in the sense that if I could pour, you know, going back to scaling a business, if I can pour more money into that or more percentage of my revenue, and I can start to kind of grow that, that then creates something that's predictable. Now that gets real interesting because I've been part of a early shoe company. That's a major brand that the predictability of it was I could literally and this, this is kind of a small venture model, and, and I actually don't have this in my capital raise uh, percentage or whatever, but we literally are raising $3 million a day for this company because we found a hole in the market that people wanted to buy these shoes online. So we were literally burning through, we would have hundreds of thousands of dollars that by 10 a.m. we would be out of our budget, which created like $1.2 million in sales. That little period, we were able to go out and raise uh, several millions of dollars and put that into um, some pay-per-click funnels and literally just massively grow that. Literally in a Christmas season, we were able to, to scale that to over $50 million for a shoe company, which was you know obviously the jackpot for them. The venture partners made money because they recycled money every every three days. They were able to kind of put that money back into the market. But those are the kind of things that becomes predictable. Like I could say, like, if I put this money into this thing, it's going to run out, but it's going to create 12x the value I put in. Well, now when you go to any investor and you can show them on a screen, the 12x value, you know, you become very predictable. And that's where you start to scale. Like, OK, now give me three million dollars. Uh, for today. So I can last the whole day and let's see how far I can take this budget. And then we were able to, you know, literally create, we ran into the high end of that. We were able to run out of money and actually sell where we didn't find any more demand for those shoes. And that that's kind of the part, the part where you want to get to is like, okay, well, we can put $1.2 million and that'll last for a whole day. As Christmas season ramped up, we got up to $3 million on some of the key days. But it's an interesting model for a company that's not prepared to take advantage of that. I was kind of prepared because I've raised a lot of capital and I really, you know, had the cliff notes to be able to go to some of my network and friends to say, hey, here's an opportunity immediately to help this company grow. But it's a guaranteed return on investment in a very short time. It was a high percentage investment for them to borrow that money because it was such a short term, but there was very, very low risk when you really look to it. So that becomes a magic formula of predictable, repeatable, predictable, scalable. And the idea of sustainable, it wasn't a sustainable model because it really was Christmas season. We did find out that that, that fell off after Christmas and they were able to kind of manage it themselves. But you know, for net, the following year, they were ready for that. And they actually put a lot of investments into their e-commerce and different things to optimize that, to lower that cost. And I was part of that because I, I owned a digital strategy firm for 15 years. But in raising capital in particular that I've been in front of, you know, many of these startups, you know, I've raised four and a half million for one, 20 for another, 60 for one. So all these different startups, you know, part of uh, groups of teams that would go in and raise money on Sand Hill Road and in different places. So I've been into Sequoia and up and down all those different, you know, venture capitalists. And, you know, they're looking for that repeatable, predictable, scalable and sustainable model. And candidly, the further you get, if you get repeatable, predictable, you can raise, you can easily raise a few million dollars. Um, I say, if you get repeatable, predictable, scalable, now you can raise 5 million plus. And this is kind of the rule of thumb. You know, it is a rule of thumb. It is not a, it's a heuristic, a shortcut, but it's, it's not a in, ingrained in truth. But if you get to sustainable, meaning that like, Hey, if I get this money, we're going to create this many customers in a lifetime value. They're three year customers and a lifetime value is this. Well, now you have, 
like your everyday SaaS model unicorn. <laughs> and that's where you get poured. Like it's always the startup founders that are like, well, how did that company raise $20 million? Well, it's because they had this formula, hmm. repeatable, predictable, scalable, sustainable. And they were able to prove that at least emotionally <laughs> and on a spreadsheet that people believed that that was going to happen. And I think it's an important part of, you know, helping investors kind of see the future through your eyes. And that's all part of the game is to make it their idea and vice versa. Because if you're both sitting on the same side of the table saying, we, we will grow this. Now you just tapped into these unbelievable networks, which also has helped build my network over, over my lifetime being involved in all these different networks. You're a couple degrees away from everyone. And that's where you can really get about anything done. And that's where when I was in Silicon Valley, I think the magic of Silicon Valley, which it's, it's fading where I think it's now been dispersed to Austin and Boston and New York and Atlanta, even in Phoenix. But Silicon Valley was a fact that if you were working on a widget that went into Facebook, you could call a Facebook engineer and they would literally come over because you had that network was so tight or you needed to figure out something with Google's algorithm. And, you know, back in the day as a early adapter of technology, I was able to grow you know, even my ex-wife's uh, social media to, to 2 million followers in, in less than 18 months. And she was literally the, at that time, the number seven ranked chef in the world. You know, we were able to get 9 million visitors to her website from, from doing that. But that was because I had an inside track. Now that's all changed because of algorithms and everything. But I think the opportunity is really to help people get repeatable, predictable, scalable, sustainable. If you can talk in that language when you're pitching and you have a confidence and you really believe emotionally that you can do that and you can back up your assumptions, um, you're going to raise a lot of money really, really quick. And that's where it becomes a magic carpet ride because then you have to deliver as quick, almost it feels like quicker <laughs> than what it took to raise that money. And that's the, uh, that's the founder's conundrum, right? Raising capital or building a company um, and why so many companies require co-founders to be able to do that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI Podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. That's right. So, I mean, my goodness, that was jam-packed with some good stuff. So what what uh, Aaron is saying is through repeatable, predictable, scalable, and sustainable. It sounds like, keep me honest, Aaron, but it sounds like we're talking about is revenue for either your startup or your investment fund or whatever it is, cash flow matters. And so if you can prove to an investor that there is in your business model, maybe revenue, but maybe other things. But the point is, is they have to understand that what opportunity they are listening to come out of your mouth and eventually they know you're going to ask for money at the end and to unlock that from Aaron's vast experience on doing this. He's saying, look, it comes down to four things to convince investors based on your business model. Your business model needs to show that it's repeatable. Did you get lucky or can you actually keep pulling this revenue off? Predictable. Okay, great. Scalable. Awesome. And finally, sustainable. So from that large shoe manufacturer, and I think I know which one you've done. We'll, we'll leave that out. But trust me, folks, it's a big shoe company. So uh, he was able to support this. And so then you go into sustainability to say, not only can we grow it, repeat it and scale it, but we can maintain that for a very long time. You build those things and investors are going to be delighted. I absolutely love that. I'm wondering if you could do one more thing from your investment. So for example, 
let's say when it's capital raising, like how do you uh, technically investors would be what we would call buyers. You're buying the uh, part of the business or whatever. How do you approach that in capital raising? Like, is there a buyer's funnel or anything like that? Maybe you can walk me through. Yeah. So, you know, I, I used to run the National Association of Sales Professionals. So I have I have some pretty good results as far as sales in, in my history. And even in the last year, I've sold $50 million of digital uh, transformation for a, a client of mine. So part of it is actually, and this is where I reversed engineer really sales, where um, when I ran the National Association of Sales Professionals, I wrote an article that said sales is dead. We all live in a buyer funnel. And I think the, uh, the internet and the ability to educate yourself on products really put the power into the hands of the consumer or the businesses buying those products or procurement. And in that, I, I really had always studied, you know, what are the persuasion and influence and psychology of selling? And there's a professor actually at Arizona State University where I taught named Robert Cialdini. He's retired uh, emeritus kind of professor that really created this model back in the, I'm going to say, 60s uh, called the powers of influence. And I really took that and I laid that on top of, I went through every, when I was running the sales association, I went through every different sales train there was. They all wanted my validation of, you know, that I would put it out to our members that this was a great sales training program. So you had these Sandler programs on one end that were teach the pain, you know, make them feel the pain, make them squirm in their chair. You had the Carnegie to make them your best friend. And you had Miller Hyman and spin and, you know, solution selling and strategic selling. You had all these Richardson. There is so many different one of them, but in the end, I boiled it down that you really need to do three things. And I think it's such an easy way to kind of think about sales. You need to connect with people. You need to ask questions and then you obviously need to close. And that all those sales processes, you know, basically fit that model. So I ended up creating something where when I said sales is dead, um, kind of got a big uproar against a lot of my people and even the sales professionals that I worked with. And I said, no, the, the skill of selling is going to be alive forever. It's just you can never get caught selling anymore. And I think we've all felt this, you know, like um, literally like public speaking is, you know, is, is fearful as death as much as it is, is going to buy a car. You know, I mean, that's, it's literally right up there as far as the fears in people's life. Right. And I think that's changing a little bit because, you know, we've kind of realized is that people don't, aren't sold to, as soon as you start selling them, you get an emotional response. And I think all of us have been trained to do this because we're much, much more educated buyers. So I, I invested a lot of time building this buyer funnel, which on the connect phase is you got to establish credibility, trust, and interest with your buyer. And that really is, you know, through done a couple of different ways, through authority or liking. And if you have authority, it's your subject matter expert. So if you think about my business model, just to be transparent of my own brand and how I've kind of gone to market, I wrote a book called Exponential Theory, The Power of Thinking Big. Well, that puts me around a lot of family offices and rich people. They're like, how do I actually think bigger about the things that I'm doing? Because it takes just as much energy to invest $500,000 as it is the 5 million to 50 million. It's, it's an interesting proposition when you start scaling revenue and working with some of these clients is how do you help them to think bigger so they can make a bigger impact and make safer bets? And that's part of the game that I'm playing on a daily basis, helping people. So in the buyer funnel, I have this authority of being the author of exponential theory. And then liking, I'm a stand-up comedian. I do improv. I won the state championship in improv. And like I have fun on stage. So I do these speaking things that uh, I take people on an emotional roller coaster because I, I talk about my own change journey and in a way of like confessions where I'm just honest about the failure that I've had. I failed a lot. And I think it's important to share that. And that's allowed me to kind of learn from it and grow. And in that, so I've established authority and liking. Now I generally have connected with somebody. And then you get to the second phase of this is that you got to answer some questions so they understand. And everybody goes through the same process when you're going to go buy a pack of gum. 
or you're gonna, <laughs> or you're gonna buy, you know, a $50 million IT services to implement digital transformation. And in that second phase of connecting, you want to say social proof. Who else has bought this product? Who else is, is buying this? So you often see this in buyer funnels and marketing as well as sales. And then it's like consistency. If you can get people to understand for their reasons to buy something, and this is where, you know, my sales is not selling. It's really just being, you know, you don't want someone, they're going to have buyer's remorse if you sell them something they don't want. So it's asking the questions to really go for the no and really work to disqualify people versus like sell them on your product. It's like, well, why do you think it would be good for you? And in a, in a way, these are sales questions, but they're opening people up to really think about why they would want to buy something versus you telling them. And it really is this, um, I always say in sales, you have, you want an 80-20 rule is you want to talk about 20% of the time. And part of that is you have one mouth, two eyes, and two ears. So the mouth should only be open 20% of the time and the other should be listening and hearing uh, what's going on. And I think it's important to ask those questions to get people through that process. And then the final thing, reciprocity is the final thing is like, if I do this, am I building a relationship? What other things, what are some ancillary things that I would get for building this relationship? Which I look at, you know, in this thing, the Change Agents Academy is when people join, I really open up my Rolodex and my network to them so they can kind of, you know, get where they want to get. And I help them find their massive transformative purpose, really go through these models that we've talked about as far as marketing and sales and creating this repeatable, predictable, scalable. So I fine tune their, their pitch and I work with a lot of different accelerators in this fashion. And then the last thing is closing, which I think closing is, is really simple because you're not selling anything. So what you want to do is contrast, like, what are the other options and really talk about the other options of what they could buy and not persuade them in yours or anything, but just really have a good conversation so that you had an open conversation about them. And then it's really scarcity is, you know, is there a way to get people to commit to that? And what's their time frame to solve the problem that you've, you know, you've experienced. And if they solve that problem, what's the benefit of that outcome? And uh, ultimately, I say you exhaust all your questions, you know, during that buyer funnel. And, you know, it's as easy as what's next. And that's the question I often ask. If I'm in front of you asking you what's next, it's because I want you to be comfortable to say where you want to take this conversation. Because a lot of times you don't want to like put someone in a pressure situation, but it's what's next is like, well, how do I buy? How do I, how do I sign up? What do I do? You know, and this goes to investors when you're pitching a, a capital fund. Um, well, what's next? You know, is when someone talks about a term sheet, you know, all of a sudden you start to know that there's some buying signals and that's, you know, reverse engineering, the reverse, the psychology of really buying, but it's what is demanded today because we're tired of being sold to. And I think that funnel, that buyer funnel uh, creates a very comfortable experience where, you know, everyone's always in a buyer funnel. And I think this is where you build your reputation and your relationships. You know, it's going back to what you said is really just being the honest broker to never put someone in something that doesn't make sense for them, actually help them make a decision not to do it. I mean, I would say 25% of the time when I do that contrast, I, I really help them buy something else. I'm like, well, it sounds like you want that. And a lot of times, well, but I want to work with you <laughs> because that other sales rep was bad mouthing my product and bad mouthing me, which ultimately we are all about relationships. And what I will say is when it, if it just comes down to price, um, you let people buy on price, they'll come back to you later because they want the relationship when things go wrong. And that's where um, ultimately, especially when you're buying B2B, like big services, you know, I've helped these consulting firms really sell millions of dollars of, of services to these Fortune 500 companies. And in that process, this, you know, I'd say negotiation of the buyer funnel, people are often surprised because what ends up happening is we end up sitting on the same side of the table when we get down to the final stage and I'll assess their, then they show the budget. You know, I mean, I think this is hard for a lot of people like, here's our budget. What should I do with it? And then I literally will carve out budget for my competitors if it makes sense, if they have a better product that fits within their system or their team has better skills that fit that. And that's where I don't even have to worry about the sale today. And this is the other big thing that I would 
tell everyone is, you know, we often overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in 10. But it is really about playing the long game and thinking about the relationships you build. It's not worth it to sacrifice anything for today. Um, And I only say that because those relationships are going to grow and grow and grow. And I'm at the age that, you know, I have anything I want to get done. I can, you know, a phone call away and make happen, whether it's a plumber or going to a concert, getting front row tickets or whatever. It's relationships that I built over the last 30 years that enable me just to have a good life because I treated them well and did things for them when they weren't expecting. And I just kept giving and giving and giving. So now you have an opportunity to kind of grow and do anything you want. You know, in in the end, I really think this is a, a, we're in a learning period of the world where we have to experiment and learn and we have to be able to make mistakes and learn from them. You know, there's a lot of cancel culture out there that, you know, we've got to really think about how do we actually help people learn from their mistakes instead of, and and move on and help them grow bigger. And that's where I've worked with a lot of family offices that have got into some issues and and conversations that the goal is to get them past that and and really rebuild the reputation. Not because of them, just because of public persona and some, some different media and different things. So my role is in, you know, in helping all these people is often just to help people change. And that requires tough conversations personally, professionally, and organizationally to help them grow. And that's where all these kind of things I've, I've really experimented with and and played with, made a lot of mistakes to kind of figure these things out over you know, a long career. Thank you for that. That is, that is absolutely brilliant. And that, that's what Aaron's talking about, at least as I interpret it, is growth, progress, everything he's talking about. And what he what he's doing, he's saying it in his own way. And we both agree. It's like, hey, man, your relationships matter probably more than you realize. Maybe you've had moments where relationships didn't work out and you're a little disappointed or whatever that might be in business or personal. I think uh, you, you spend a few rotations around the sun. You, a lot of us uh, might have one or two of those moments. The point is, is learning the value of those relationships and leverage that and that that is why we call it long game strategy right i mean you some people are best friends of the day they meet, but over time, building those truly um, predictable and, and sustainable, I, I use the bookends of your formula, but doing that in a, in a relationship is really important. So it's like, look, if you're both two scoundrels, right, as they say, no honor amongst thieves or, you know, like good luck with that relationship. But if there's some moral and some standards, that's sustainable. And you can say, look, there's certain lines that we don't cross in this friendship, um, even and maybe that friendship stemmed from business or maybe a business stemmed from friendship. Either way, those relationships matter and they're scaling. So as we wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like our fans around the world to know anything at all. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I built this change agents Academy to kind of share a lot of these things, um, work with a lot of accelerators, startups, unicorns. I also work in the boardroom at global companies and coach CEOs. So my website, AaronBear.com, you know, is a place to learn more about me and the change agents Academy is a place where I'm really growing a community of change agents that our ultimate goal is to get them through this kind of curriculum that I talk a, a process of change theory and, and change practice, uh, where they can go into companies and create influence tanks and, create innovation tanks and revenue tanks where we literally go in like a think tank and really solve really big problems by applying the wisdom of a crowd versus uh, and democratize like decisions so the companies can move faster. And that's just all part of my background and facilitation of how to grow that. So the Change Agents Academy is really a recruiting tool to have people work directly with me so that I can help them you know, really create the change they want to see in the world, whether it's starting the next unicorn, being the next Google, or, uh, you know, really person that wants to be a farmer on Mars. And we have, <laughs> we have all types of different change agents that are, are really preparing for their own futures. And it's just enable them with a the network and the tools so they can actually uh, get there. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time. You've been very generous. And I didn't realize I wanted to be a farmer on Mars until I actually heard it. I was like, that actually sounds a lot of fun. Uh, but <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's my great 
grandkids. Well, just remember, them. just remember, there's you, in five minutes you die, like if you don't breathe. So that's the thing they got to figure out. Is, uh, you know, how to, how there's the whole breathing back. thing you got to figure. So there's <laughs> that. Awesome, man. Well, you know, just to synthesize our time together, folks, learn the marketing budget formula for growth. Thirty percent gives you the odds, the greatest odds of success. The second thing that we talked about is raising capital. Just make sure your investors see your opportunity as repeatable, predictable, scalable, and sustainable. And finally, when launching your pitch, be sure to establish credibility, trust, and interest. You do these things and you too will be well on your way in your pursuit of making billions. Wow, what a show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions.